The following program was previously recorded. Welcome book lovers to our worldwide book club discussion. Finally, we get to talk about this book I love so much. We're coming to you live from uh, our studios in Chicago, Harpo, and we're uniting readers from all over the globe. This is really so exciting, including London, Australia, um, South Africa, and beyond. For what has to be really, I think, the biggest book club meeting ever. Tonight, we're talking to author David Robleski about one of the best books I've read in a long, long time, our book club selection, The Story of Edgar Sawtell. Now, when I read this novel, I knew it was something truly special, and I wanted to, you know, meet the man who wrote it, so much so that, you know, I didn't wait for a book club selection. I just called him up. <laughs> hey, wasn't that fun? Yes, it was, welcome, absolutely. Welcome, welcome I'm very you. happy to be here, thanks. Thank you so much. And so uh, I hadn't chosen it that when I called you, right? I hadn't chosen it yet. No, no, no. I just wanted to talk about all the characters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we just barely got started. So. And so tell us throughout our web, well, first of all, throughout our webcast tonight, we're going to be taking questions from all of you. Well, not all of you. We can't get everybody on. But our phone lines are open, and the number to call is right there on your screen. It's 866-677-2496 or Oprah XM, 866-OPRAH-XM. You can also email us on the right of your screen and we'll uh, read your question or call you at home. But before we get started, I want to have just a short refresher. Now, I'm assuming that if you're online with us right now, you have read the book because I'm getting ready to do a refresher of this brilliant novel. And the refresher is going to tell you everything that happens in the book. So if you're one of those people like my friend Gail, this is the time to put your fingers in your ears. You don't want to know what the outcome is going to be. Or if you're like Dean, our stage manager, who's not quite finished the book yet, here's the time to put your fingers in your ears, Dean. Story of Edgar Sartell, take a look. Set near the northern Wisconsin woods, the story of Edgar Sawtell is an epic novel about a family who breeds an exceptionally intuitive and highly intelligent type of dog. Sawtell dogs, as they are known, are highly sought after. The Sawtell's only child, Edgar, is born mute and communicates through sign. His loyal companion, Almondine, a beautiful Sawtell dog, is always by his side. When his father's troubled brother, Claude, moves back to the family farm, it sets into motion a chain of events that shatter their idyllic world. Edgar's father suddenly drops dead, causing the family business to teeter on the brink of collapse. Claude offers to take charge, and in the process, seduces Edgar's mother, Trudy. In one of many nods to Shakespeare's Hamlet, the story takes a supernatural turn when Edgar's father comes to him as a ghost and reveals that he was poisoned. Edgar flees into the Wisconsin wilderness, leaving his mother and beloved Almondine behind. The story now begins its tragic conclusion. Almondine dies, searching for Edgar, who eventually returns home to confront his uncle. It is then Edgar and Claude meet their fate as the barn goes up in flames. Sensing death and destruction, the Sawtell dogs break free to find their own destiny in the deep dark of night. So you say the idea for this book came to you in one afternoon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I always describe it as an idea package because it really combined uh, two or three different elements. Uh, I was interested in uh, writing a story about dogs. 
uh, because I hadn't read a story about dogs in a long time. Mm -hmm. This was in the mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. uh, I was interested in um, drawing on classical sources, and in particular Hamlet, because mm -hmm. I was, I've always been interested in that story. Um, and I, I wanted it to involve uh, something about language. I'm interested in language and how we use it or fail to use it, mm -hmm. um, how we can misuse it. Uh, and so uh, the idea of muteness uh, was part of that idea package right from the start. All in one idea in one afternoon. All in one idea in one afternoon. It sort of arrived for me. Uh, and in particular, the way it arrived, I had been thinking about how to write a book about dogs. Um, and since this is my first novel, that was completely daunting to me. Um, and one of the things that was so very helpful. So what else had you written? written? I'd written short stories. I'd been yeah. taking, for about five years, I'd been writing short stories, participating in workshops, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but I had concluded that the short story wasn't my form. Mm -hmm. uh, and I knew I wanted to try a novel. That is the art form that I've always loved the most. Uh, and so I wanted to try it, but I was daunted. You always loved it because you loved reading them, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But I responded, uh, I think, as many uh, people who are interested in writing do, I responded to the writing of the book as much as I responded to the story in the book itself. Really? I would read a book and say, uh, you know, I love that story, and, but my imagination would always go immediately to, I wonder how they wrote it. I wonder yeah, how that yeah, worked. Yeah. Um, and I'm very interested in the creative process I was in general process. and other areas. Yes. Okay. So I remember when I called you the first time, you were saying that you had had your jaws wired at some point, and that brought about this whole idea of muteness. Well, my jaws weren't wired. I had actually had very, very minor oral surgery, but it involved a stitch in a place that made it hard for me to talk. Okay. Uh, and, and so... I guess in my imagination, I picture you... Well, it was hard enough to talk that, or um, it was hard enough to pronounce words that explaining why I couldn't pronounce words was problematic. So I just said, well, look, I'm going to take, uh, I'm just going to take a few days instead of not going anywhere. I'll just do all the things that I normally do, but I won't talk. Uh, and it was a very interesting experience because what I discovered was I began to observe, be a better observer of the world around me because I wasn't spending time talking. I was spending more time watching. Uh, and I made at the time... So you made a decision that I'm not going to talk, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you could have talked or you were talking like this. Right, exactly. Okay. So you say, I'm not going to talk for a few days. Right. And out of that, Edgar was born? In, in part, his muteness was, was born. born. Uh, because I, uh, I made a mental note at that moment that um, it's always interesting to have a character who is more observant than they would ordinarily be. Most, mm. of the, most of us transact our lives, and we're not paying attention to details because we know them so well. That's right. Um, so having a character who's especially good at observing is, uh, is a real gift to a writer. And wow. generally that's done by having, a having the character be a stranger in a new place uh, who comes in and sees it freshly for the first time or has a lot of questions uh, or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, it struck me that you could have a character who was naturally observant um, because, of their, because they, they didn't spend their time talking. Mm. Um, so I thought that, that was, was so powerful when you shared it with me the first time and even hearing it here now that how more powerful you become as an observer when you're not talking. Yeah. And the other thing, uh, part of that experience that day when I had the original idea was um, it, things sort of clicked together in a different way, which is uh, the idea that dogs, in my life with dogs, 
what I've noticed that is that they're extraordinarily good observers. They watch us. Uh, and I thought in writing about dogs, it would be good to have a human character who could observe dogs as well as they can observe us. So did you have dogs growing up? I did. Uh, my, my folks lived on a small farm in central Wisconsin, mm -hmm. which is the, exactly the prototype for the Sawtell farm, mm -hmm. but located further south in the state. Um, and for about five years, they raised dogs, various kinds of dogs, um, from about the time I was five until I was 10. We'd had dogs as pets before then, mm -hmm. and we had dogs as pets after that then. But uh, during that period, they were actually trying to raise dogs. It was something my mother had always been interested in. Uh, and so I grew up sort of during that sweet spot in childhood between five and 10 years, uh, doing odd jobs around the kennel, socializing the pups, and so on. Mm. Uh, so they're part of my life. Recently, David took us to the area of northern Wisconsin that he had in his mind's eye when he wrote the story of Edgar Sautel. I think the place where you grow up has tendrils in your mind and in your imagination and your psyche that for good or for bad, they're there forever. The farm in the book is based on the farm that I grew up on, transported out of central Wisconsin about 100 miles north and set down here in the Shawamigan. When I look at farms like this, I have all the mixed feelings that I have about growing up poor in the country. It's a mixture of living close to the land and also living uh, very close to disaster, really. It's hard to live here. Uh, it's not easy. You work for it. You earn it every day uh, or you lose it. I have been interested in dogs my whole life. From about the time I was five years old until I was 10 years old, my parents had a, had a dog kennel. Uh, there were dogs everywhere, puppies everywhere. And that was my job to work with the pups. I loved it. In some ways, the best experience that a kid could have. I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be a writer. My only attempt at writing in high school was one short story that I wrote for a contest. And my motivation was simply uh, to get a day off from school. To my tremendous surprise, uh, I won and I set it aside, I forgot about it, and then 10 or 12 years later, I came back to it and said, I'd like to do that again. I'd like to see what I can do. Once the events get rolling in the story, Edgar is torn between staying and confronting the problems on the farm and leaving. There's a temptation for him, I think, to just head out into the woods uh, and never come back. And so when I look out on this landscape, it pretty much embodies what I was thinking of. And so I've, I've come back to this spot many times. You can't imagine how hard it would be to find somebody if they, if they didn't want to be found here. When it came to writing Edgar's story, I wanted to take advantage of this setting that I knew. But I also feel like what I've tried to do at least was take that land and remove all the people that I knew and install all new people. And that was part of the real fun of writing the story for me was I knew the land, but I didn't know the people. And I had to, and I had to learn about them in the writing. Beautiful, just like I pictured it in my mind's eye too. Yes, that was great. How long did it take you to write it? Uh, over in terms of calendar time, it was somewhere between 10 and 15 years. And I say between 10 and 15 years because uh, that, the day that that uh, idea package arrived, 
uh, I didn't act on it right away. Um, it, it occupied my mind. I made various attempts to get started, but it took me a couple of years and a, and a few false starts to really get rolling on it. So, so how are you supporting yourself in between? Uh, I've been a software developer since 1981, mm -hmm. uh, which is work that I love doing. Um, it's very creative, and for me, uh, uh, it occupies my imagination every bit as much as writing or any other creative thing that I've done. Wow. So I love doing that. So we have Vontressa from Albany, Georgia on the line, David. Hello, Vontressa. Hi, it's Vontressa. Uh, Vontressa, okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, hi, everybody. Um, I just wanted to congratulate Mr. Robleski on his success, and I also wanted to know how he came up with the concept of the actual book and the imaginary breed of the Spotted Dogs. The imaginary breed, hi. yeah. Hi, Vontressa. Um, hi. The... Uh, uh, the imaginary breed is, uh, was not, uh, took me a while to understand how to write this story. Uh, and I made a few false starts. And one of the false starts that I made was to choose a specific breed of dog uh, for, for the sawtail yeah, dogs. And yeah. what I discovered uh, when I would workshop that material or show it to other people is they that they would react to the breed of the dog rather than, in my mind, the dogs were... Um, were all dogs. They were the every dogs. Yes. Um, and so I, eventually I decided that I would try an experiment, which was to take as much information out of the story about the dogs as possible and leave them underdescribed. And what I noticed was that people use their own filled in the details yeah. from their own experience. And that was that it was immediately apparent that that was the right way to go. So, but it was an example of uh, what I've experienced in writing many times over, which is. You try things, and then you have to stand back and see if they work. Sort of listen to the work in progress, and then sort of uh, evaluate and go with what works, uh, and not impose an idea on it ahead of time. So, thanks, thanks, Fontresa. Thank you. Thank you. So Fort, and that's uh -huh. okay. Fort, the wild dog in the book, was he based on a real dog? Yes, I actually call him Forte. You call him Forte? Yes. Uh, I called him, I thought he was Forte since I have many, a friend named Forte, yes. but I thought, well, he couldn't be Forte. Yeah, he's Forte. He is Forte. He's Forte, and he is, um, he is uh, based on two different dogs. His name is drawn from a dog that we had when we were breeding uh, dogs uh, back when I was a kid, a very big dog, hence, hence the name Forte. Um, uh, but his character is based on a different dog, a wild or a half-wild dog, that I adopted um, when I was probably 11 or 12 years old, who I called Prince. Mm -hmm. And uh, Prince had been abandoned near our house. Uh, as in the story, people used to abandon their dogs. When they didn't want dogs, they would abandon them near our place because they knew we raised dogs. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, um, we found Prince running through the fields. He wouldn't come in. Uh, I spent a fair amount of time just coaxing him in. Uh, and we only ever got him sort of half uh, domesticated, really. He wouldn't come into the house. Uh, he would not ever allow a, uh, a collar or a leash to be put on him. Um, but he was intensely loyal and very protective of the yard. Um, and he, he took it on as his personal responsibility to round up every skunk within uh, a mile <laughs> and somehow corner it near our back door. Wow. So I spent a lot of 
a lot of time washing him out after things like that. And so. does tomato juice work for skunks? I always heard that if you wash. I wish I I don't know. I wish I'd even heard that at the time uh, because we just shampooed Prince, uh, <laughs> and it didn't work very well. I don't okay. say. Okay, so print forte is based upon Prince. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Jocelyn from Boston, Massachusetts, skyping us from her family room. Hi, Jocelyn. Is it true that Hi, you? Oprah. I Hi, hear you've read every book club selection. Is that true? I have read every single book club selection, so this is huge that I'm getting to be on through <laughs> Skype and everything. This is crazy. Wow, this is crazy wild fun. Okay. Crazy, crazy wild fun. And, and Oprah, I actually read this book on a Kindle. No. Yes. Was it? So uh, I really, I really have followed your um, your book selection guidance and everything. Oh, that's great. Do you like the Kindle? Because some people love it, as I do, and other people. How are you feeling about it? You know, I really, really liked it. I found that I read the book much quicker, quicker? than I would read a normal book because, um, you know, it's I can't tell how many pages I have until the end. You know, there's a little thing across the bottom, but it's it's very nice to get completely lost in the book um, without paying attention to you know how much further you have book. to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I loved it. I really loved it. So was this um, your first Kindle book. read? Was this your first Kindle read? This was my first Kindle read. I got the Kindle actually for Christmas, and this was the first book I bought on it, and I read it in about about a week and a half. Wow! And it's you know huge book. So yes, I that, do. You know, yeah. So I and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And and yes, I have read every single book club selection. So it, and don't you just love this one more than I? I loved it. I loved it. And um, my question actually for David is: the character of Trudy was such a strong woman. And I was wondering if you had a lot of strong female influences in your life that really helped you connect to that personality. And if that was, if she was based on anyone in particular in your life. Was she strong? Was she strong? That's a really good question. I think she's, um... I think she is both <laughs> strong and very flawed. I was going to say she's I think very flawed, very vulnerable. Very, I, I, I consider that the big weakness that she couldn't see through Claude, that she couldn't, that she would do that, that she, you know, that her love for Edgar wasn't strong enough to overcome her, you know, desires or whatever. Yeah, I, but I also think that, uh, particularly in fiction, which heightens things anyway, uh, people who have great strength also have great weaknesses yeah. that, uh, that balance those strengths. And I, I think of Trudy as a very strong character, but strong also character, blinded, I say, but blinded by her, by, by her weaknesses at the yes, same time. Yes, yeah, yeah. So she's not, she's not modeled on any one particular person. Uh, I have known a lot of strong women in my life and people I've enjoyed working with and so on. My mother was a very traditional um, uh, housewife and mother. She, she worked in the house most of the time, although she worked outside the house. So she's not modeled on my mother in mm -hmm. any way. Um, uh, I, I just felt like I was too close to, to those people and that's why I say I sort of evacuated uh, our, our land and put all new people in. Yeah. Um, Even to the point of the name of Edgar. Right. You just, you liked that name and it I was like a that name, name that you... Yes. It, well, I knew that when I started the book because uh, I wanted to draw on Hamlet. I wanted a name for the main character that had two syllables mm -hmm. and in some way sounded like Hamlet, had a soft beginning, uh, started with a vowel or a soft consonant. It was two, two syllables and so on. So there's Edgar or Edward or Oscar, things, words mm -hmm. like that. I happen to like Edgar because I didn't know anybody named Edgar. So, so I didn't have any preconceived say, notions yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and part, you know, part of what, uh, honestly, what influenced my choice of Trudy, or my characterization of Trudy, is Gertrude in Hamlet. Mm. She's a mysterious character in that story. Um, she has also uh, great strength, and yet she makes uh, decisions about how to behave that are hard to explain. So um, those were all parts of the mix. Well, Jocelyn, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I know you'll thank be reading, because you. the thing about the Kindle is you end up reading more books than you thought you could, e even at one time. I used to be just a one-at-a-time one one time kind of reader, and I find that I do two or three at a time now. Yeah, it makes it too easy to buy books, though. Man, I keep buying those. <laughs> I know. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for your support all these years. Oh, thank you, Oprah. Okay, you must have quite a little library now. Yes, I do. That's great. Yes, I do. I've been buying a lot. And um, so if you need any book recommendations, Oprah, call me. I will, yeah, because <laughs> it's hard to find a one, one after this one. It really is. For a while, it was hard to read anything after Edgar Sawtell. And where did the name Sawtell come from? Uh, I don't know. I, I know I heard it on the radio when I was driving home from work one day, but I don't know in what context. So many people have asked me. Uh, I've been told that it's a more unusual name than Robleski. Believe it or not, <laughs> yeah, that, which is hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it may be, it may be that I heard a reference to uh, the Sawtell district in Los Angeles. Uh -huh. uh, there's a bluegrass musician named Charles Sawtell, um, and perhaps I heard a reference to him. I don't know what was on the radio at all. All I know is um, I had been, uh, I had been wondering, what am I going to, what are these people's names? And I knew, I knew their first names, but I didn't know their last name. And uh, it's a, it was about a 15-minute commute home. And I heard it in the car shortly after I got on the, on the road. And by the time I parked in the driveway, it was Sawtell. It was Edgar Sawtell. And I've never, it, it never, uh, never seemed like it could be anything else after that. So let's talk about uh, the parallels between Edgar Sawtell and Hamlet. Was, you were talking about how, yeah. how Trudy modeled after Gertrude. You decided before you began writing the book that that's what you were going to do? Yes. Really? Yes. Um, However, uh, I should qualify that because uh, the original idea was to draw on the story of Hamlet, not the, not the play necessarily, but the story. And the story goes back longer than the play. The story of Hamlet is actually, uh, when the play was written, it was, uh, it was drawing on a legend that was older in Shakespeare's time mm -hmm. than Hamlet is in our time. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very old legend. It's quite different in many ways from Hamlet, the old legend. Um, so I wanted, a, I wanted to draw it very loosely, and I also wanted to, to draw not just on Hamlet, but on Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, mm -hmm. Other plays like uh, Romeo and Juliet, uh, like Othello, like Lear, and so on, in various ways. And I thought of them taken together as a sort of palette that I could draw from. So did you think that first, and then this conce conceptual idea came to you that afternoon? What came first? Uh, they came pretty much the package together. Come, did the there package was a, come? part of the package. There's the dogs. It was drawing on the story of Hamlet. Uh, it was mutinous, uh, and it was five act structure. Wow. Uh, um, was was the final part of that? Um, the idea that um, a, a story, a complex story, could be broken down the way a stage play is broken down into acts, which uh, which is not a particularly insightful thing. It was it was a big deal for me at, in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, as someone who is sort of approaching this project. Because that gave you a beginning, that gave you a foundation, that gave you something from which to begin the process. Right. I, understood, I understood structure because of that. Yeah. Uh, or at least enough 
to begin, although most of the details of the story I, did not, I had no clue about when I began. I knew what the feeling of the general arc of the story was. And what, I had a what feeling about where it was going to go. I understood that it was a tragic arc. Mm -hmm. um, I understood that in, this, uh, in the center or toward the end of the story, uh, Edgar would leave the farm, but that most of the, most of the story would, ex would take place on the farm, and the farm would act as a kind of stage. Wow. With sort of, even in my mind then, I was thinking in terms of stage lighting and so on. Don't y'all just love this process? I mean, I'm, I like you, I love, again, every author's process is different. Yeah. And so then, would you write every day? I tried. I tried. Although I don't have, uh, I'm not one of those writers who has uh, uh, almost sort of military discipline about it. I do a thousand words a day and so on. I tend to go in bursts, and particularly in first draft. Uh, mm -hmm. So my, for me, first draft is very different than subsequent drafts. Mm -hmm. And this book has gone through something on the order of 12 drafts. Mm -hmm. So the first draft is uh, um, when the material is going to come out, it's going to come out whenever, whatever time of day that is. When I was working full time, it was mainly in the evenings for some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, later drafts, as I was revising, uh, I tended to do those more in the morning uh, or in the afternoon. Now, do the characters, are you you know, sitting methodically writing passages for them? Or do the characters sort of visit you or live with you? I mean, I've talked to other authors who, you know, it works both ways. Yeah, for me, uh, I feel like I'm having a conversation uh, with the book itself, but not with any particular character. Um, one of the things that I learned from the world of software is that when you get something partially made, it begins to give you a lot of information back about what it can be or can't be, um, what it's going to be good at, uh, what if you want it to be something that it's not being good at, how hard you're going to have to work to unwind it and start over and send it off in a new direction. So, and, and that experience with software also translated for me into writing. A half-written book uh, begins to push back in very interesting ways. Begins to push back. Yeah, pushes back. Do, do the characters, after a while, then start to tell their own story? The, I wouldn't, I don't think of it as individual characters. For instance, okay. you know, sometimes you hear writers say, this character came in from out of nowhere yes. and took over. Yes. Never my experience. Never your experience. My experience was that at certain points the story um, demanded that certain kinds of action took place. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, certain scenes were long enough or, or not long enough. Uh, but it wasn't based on a, the character's personality per se, with a couple of exceptions. Henry's an exception. We, yeah. We'll talk about that. Um, but Love most Henry. of the time, it was the book as a whole. My experience was it was a book as a whole saying, you know, um, uh, this section is perhaps too comedic mm -hmm. uh, because my tendency is to... Is to um, to uh, gesture toward comedy, not tragedy, mm -hmm. when I'm writing. And so I would have to rein that in a lot and take mm -hmm. some, of, some of that material out. Wow. Karen from, Ber from Vermont. Hi, Karen. You're on the phone. Hi. Hi, Oprah. Hi. Hi, David. Hi, Karen. My question has to do with Amandine. And um, I'm just interested in the way that you personified her in the story. Ooh. And she said, Amandine seemed to be one of the most intelligent and enlightened characters in the story, and I wondered if that was intentional on your part. Yeah, and was Amandine based on any dog you ever had or knew? She's not. Uh, okay, so uh, Amandine was a character, and uh, this is an example of a surprise for me. Amandine was a character that um, 
didn't have her own perspective in this story until it was about, the first draft was about half done. Really? I, the first draft of this book was written in first person from Edgar's point of view. Um, and uh, I got about to the middle of the book and I, re I, I, I didn't understand what was going on, but all of a sudden I was realizing I couldn't go forward. And I actually stopped writing on the book for about a year. Um, and what was actually happening is, was I was discovering that I, that I, I couldn't go forward purely in Edgar's point of view. And the first time I discovered that was I sat down one day and I wrote the first Almondine chapter. And it was this anomalous experience. Here I had this book where Edgar's talking about me and I and all these things uh, that have happened. And he's thinking back on. Um, and, uh, and all of a sudden, there's this chapter from Almondine's point of view. Uh, and it happened, uh, that was written in a day or two. Uh, and the chapter that, you, that is in the final form of the book is virtually unchanged from that first draft, which is true of very little of the rest of the book. Uh, the rest of the book has been edited a lot over and over. But, but all, the, chapter was all, Almondine, all of Almondine's chapters are almost exactly the way they were in first draft. Um, she's not based on any dog. She's an amalgamation of every dog I've ever known. Uh, and uh, so I, can't, I couldn't pick a single dog and say she comes, comes from them. But I did want her to have a very distinctly different way of experiencing the world. I wanted the language for her to be more poetic. Uh, I wanted her to not operate in terms of um, sort of rational, what we call rational thought, be very much more based in her senses, uh, and, uh, and to think of time differently. Because she, she thinks of, for instance, in that first chapter, uh, trying to find the thing that was going to happen. Yes. Um, and so she's experienced. At the bottom of page 34, everybody, while Almondine pondered this, a sound reached her ears, a whispery rasp, barely audible even to her. At first, she couldn't make sense of it. The moment she'd walked into the room, she'd heard the breaths coming from the blanket, the ones that nearly matched his mother's breathing. And so it took her a moment to understand that in this new sound, she was hearing distress to realize that this near silence was the sound of him wailing. She waited for the sound to stop, but it went on and on, as quiet as the rustle of the new leaves on the apple trees. That was what the concern had been about, she realized. The baby had no voice. It couldn't make a sound. Mm -hmm. oh. oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And then, at the top of 35, this is one of my favorite lines in the book, Almondine began to pant. She shifted her weight from one hip to the other, and as she looked on and saw his mother continue to sleep, she finally understood the thing that was going to happen was that her time for training was over. And now, at last, she had a job to do. Yeah. Yeah. How it, did that come to you, David? Um, I don't know how to answer that question, because I, I don't remember specifically writing that line. But I do remember thinking when I wrote it that um, I like the idea that our dogs, our animals, can have a revelatory moment, can wow. realize that they have a purpose in their lives. And um, so one of the reasons why I think I didn't touch these chapters very much was because um, through whatever um, luck or grace you get out of writing, yeah. uh, a passage like that happens. You go, oh, that was, that feels... I didn't even know I meant that until I wrote it. And then I said, OK, that's what it, that's what, that was right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to change that or mess with it. Wow. So Karen? Yeah. Did you get your question answered? I did. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Karen. You're welcome.
So we have a book club Skyping in from Appleton, Wisconsin, not too far from the setting of the book. So what's your question? Wow, there's a whole club there. Hi. Hi, folks. Appleton, Wisconsin, hello. Everybody with their Edgar Sawtell book. So what's the question? Who's the... And our Kindles. And your Kindles, great, great. Hi. Um, I was just wondering about the lack of other relationships for Edgar in the story. Yeah. Seems like a child that age would want to share his home and his dogs and, and all the wonderful things that are going on at his home with, with his friends. Uh, that's a great question. Um, part, of, uh, part of what I was interested in doing with Edgar was isolating him. Um, for a number of reasons. I was interested in the idea of haunting, which is one of the themes of the book. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, he's, and I wanted, for, for the purposes of the story, for him to not have to spend much time off the farm. I wanted that, that farm, that barn, that yard, that house, to be like a stage set um, it, to which he was confined uh, in a sort of pressure cooker mm -hmm. until the moment when he leaves. So um, that dictated a number of choices about how much of his outside life, his school life and so on, were actually present in the story itself. Right. And there were many scenes where he's on the bus or he's in school and so on that I cut as I, as I understood that um, in order to keep the dramatic tension in place, I needed, to, I needed to restrict what we saw of his life to home. But I also think that that's, that's where all the important things happened to him. So it wasn't important to show uh, his life in school or, or really anywhere else. Yeah, and also not being able to speak, that would be a part of the reason why he would be isolated. And right. just imagine, ladies, if he could, then he would be able to share all of these feelings of discontent or whatever was going on at home. There would be the friend and the friends and the right. school and all of right. that engaged in it. So I, right. see, I see how you, why you set it up that way. Right, he needed, he, the people that he needed to be closest to were the dogs and his family. Right. Um, so there was really no space in the story for the rest of it. Right, and if you had a friend, so. that would have taken energy away from the dogs. Right, exactly. Yeah. Any other questions? That's a good question, though, really good question. Anybody else in the book club? Yep. Uh, yeah, I wondered um, why at the, at the beginning of the story, it seems so important for Edgar to find out how his parents met. Yeah. And then at the end, the, the end I, Edgar, and ultimately the reader, does not find mm -hmm. out how his parents met, and I wondered why um, yeah. David constructed it that way. Yeah, that's good. Good question. I like that too. There's a. Uh, th I think that's a, first of all. I think that's an excellent question, uh, and it's something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, in the very beginning of this book, Edgar has a couple of problems that he has to solve. Uh, one of them is why uh, Schultz left the farm. Mm -hmm. It's the very first problem he has to solve. But along with that is this other problem of how did his parents meet. It's a sort of mystery he has to solve. Um, and I intended for him never to know the real answer to that because I think of those two problems as sort of practice problems for Edgar. He's going to have a bigger problem later in the book. And the bigger problem is um, what actually happened between Gar and Claude. And he's never going to have evidence that is irrefutable about that. So he's only going to be able to solve those problems through his imagination. Hmm. Uh, so he, uh, in the first chapter, he solves that, that problem about Schultz. Uh, and just, just by visualizing Schultz over and over again, decides that Schultz left because uh, he was lonely. 
um, with regard to his, how his parents met, um, he reaches a point in the story where his mother offers to tell him, if you remember, mm -hmm. uh, when the uh, fires are burning out in the field to soften the ground for his father's grave. And she says, if you really want to know, I'll tell you. Um, and he decides he doesn't want to know uh, because to know that would uh, eliminate all these other ways that they met and it would reduce it to just one way. And for him, it was more important that all those different ways existed and he felt like his life would be more complete with all those different alternatives in place than if he just picked one. Wow. Um, you did think about it a lot. Yes. Yes. But <laughs> this is an example of one of the story elements that didn't get finalized until very late in the writing process. Uh, and my editor and I talked a lot about this very point. Should we give a final answer to this or not? Uh, and, and part of it was, I don't know myself. I don't know how they met. Uh, and it, just working within the confines of the book, you know, there's a, there's a framework and you need to know answers to certain questions. And I felt like if I knew the answer, Edgar would have to know the answer. So I very studiously tried not to know that answer, to not try and solve that problem uh, during the writing of this book. So Appleton, Wisconsin uh, Reading Club, did you all have a lot of talks amongst yourselves about this book? Oh, yeah. yeah. So many. So many, yeah. And we're going to be talking, so of, of course, later on about the ending and why that ending. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yes. Lots of questions about the ending. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. But thank you for joining us, everybody. Thank, thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Wisconsin. Did you all coordinate your colors? Yes. <laughs> okay, you must have. <laughs> that could not have been by accident, really. You look great. Thank you. Uh, we, thank you so much. We talked to Ann Leary on the show last Friday and learned from her husband, actor and writer, Dennis Leary, that she loves Edgar, Edgar Sautel. And she joins us tonight from uh, New York City. Hi, Ann. <laughs> Hi, Oprah. You're there. Is that Daphne? I, I can't hear you. Is that Daphne? Is that dog Daphne? Oh, yeah, this is Daphne. I'm sorry. She's not posing very well. It's OK. No. She's sleeping. <laughs> it's, it's OK. It's OK. Um, David, congratulations. I really, really loved your book. I'm an author myself, and I have to say the first thing I loved about your book was its title. And I know how hard it is to name a book, but uh, when I first heard the title of your book, I understood immediately that it was going to be a legend of some type. I was really glad you said that earlier in the show. It really is, is quite a legend um, about Edgar. Yeah. And my question is, um, I was really, I also liked your device um, of giving a little history about Edgar's grandfather and his breeding. Uh, program and the way you used the correspondence with the uh, Mr. Brooks mm -hmm. from um, the, I can't remember the name of the um, the German Shepherd breeding. Yeah. Um, the Fortunate Fields it, Project. Yeah. The Fortunate Fields okay, Project. Gonna, yeah. So anyway, I was very interested in the, the correspondence between the two men about their ideas of, uh, of, of kind of <laughs> selecting, selective breeding and trying to perfect a breed. And I also noticed that it was set these, these letters were set in, like, 1944. I think the last one was 1944. So I was interested in, was there any um, deliberate attempt to draw a correlation between what was going on in... And I, and I know they were talking about reading German Shepherds. So I didn't know if there was some um, deliberate attempt to co uh, compare what was going on in Nazi Germany with um, kind of trying to develop a superior race. 
Uh, oh, interesting question. And I have to say that Daphne is the is the most relaxed person on camera ever. <laughs> I'm sorry, Almadine would never pose like this. I know. I'll have to do this. <laughs> it's charming. She's very relaxed. It's charming. Oh, God. Uh, uh, so the answer to your question is no, actually. Um, um, uh, there was no uh, intent on, uh, on my part to draw any connection to Nazi Germany or any of that. Uh, and in fact, I tried as hard as I could over the course of the story to sort of wall off the outside world in every way. So, uh, so, so 1944, you weren't trying to make a superior dog. No, you know, was no. Trying to make a break. But it was drawing on a the Fortunate Fields program, which mm -hmm. which um, was established in Switzerland back in the like 1925, mm -hmm. and was the first attempt to breed uh, to scientifically breed dogs for behavior uh, to to breed working dogs. And there's this very uh, famous old book. Uh, used to be out of print, is now back in print, called Working Dogs by uh, Humphrey and Warner. Uh -huh. uh, and Brooks is this fictional third author to that book. But I did read that book and drew on that experience to uh, sort of integrate into the discussion of the breeding program. So, Did you have another question? Because the other day you said you had so many questions. Oh, I have so many questions. Well, you know, I really was quite... I was, I was most impressed with your understanding of dog behavior. A lot of books I read, I'm a dog nut, and I've read, I think I know, I, I love to read about dog training and behavior and, and theories. And I was really impressed uh, that, because often people write books about dogs, and I don't get a sense that they really understand dogs. And I was really impressed with, um, you know, your understanding of the way a dog's mind works. I felt early on when you wrote from Almondine's point of view that you must have read quite a bit of Jack London growing up because um, that reminded me a little bit of, of his yeah. work. And um, I just, I felt like I, I, I felt like I knew you. I, I, I got the sense you were an only child when I read this because of, again, the triangulation between the, the parents and him not knowing about their background and him feeling a little isolated, not part of the, the couple. Is that, are you an only child? I'm not, I'm the youngest not, of no, okay. three. I have an older sister, Bobby, and, a, and an older brother, Daniel. Uh-huh. Okay. And thanks. Give our best to Dennis. I will. That I was, will. Tell him that was wild fun. Thank you so much. And Daphne, my much. God, what can we say? <laughs> Daphne's a star. Daphne. <laughs> I mean, arms wide open, legs wide open. There it is. <laughs> oh, gosh. You're going to love that photo later. <laughs> Skyping in from Canton, Michigan is the Bookends Book Club. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hi, Hi there. What's your question for David? Okay, um, my first question, or my question is, what prompted Trudy to start a relationship with Claude? That's one of the central mysteries of the book, isn't it? It's, uh, uh, it's, Because um, don't we all think she should have known better? Yeah. Yes. yes, my goodness, gosh. Um, well, this is something that I, uh, I delayed trying to reveal in the book till, uh, for as long as possible because I wanted, in the center of the book, when it's actually happening during the courtship cha chapter and so on, I wanted, um, I wanted it to seem as inexplicable for readers as it should seem for Edgar. And in fact, that was sort of the, one right. of the guiding principles about the first uh, half or two-thirds of the book was that I didn't want the readers to know more than Edgar. I wanted everyone to be in the same position what is going on with Trudy? Why? What is going on with Claude? Do we really trust him? Do we not? He's a little bit charismatic. He's very interesting, but um, uh, is is are our suspicions right or not? And not have any evidence. So um, 
it isn't until the end of the book that uh, Trudy talks about this in one of her, I think of them as soliloquy chapters, mm -hmm. one of the chapters where she's uh, thinking back on things. And at least for me, and I think everybody gets to interpret this myself, I, I should say that, or themselves, I should say that I, I don't yeah. feel like the author has the final word always on things like this. Okay, but... Um, but, but at least for me, uh, it, she is looking pretty desperately for a way to recapture Gar. And her, uh, again, I mentioned earlier about haunting. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that Trudy is haunted by Gar in not literally the way Edgar is, but she's haunted by her memory of Gar. Um, and when she looks at Claude, she sees a little bit of Gar. Uh, it's a way to um, access Gar. It's a, a way to know Gar in a way that she never knew Gar before because Claude knew Gar. And so she can ask him questions and so on. And so um, it's, a, uh, it's a bad bargain, but it's a bargain that she's making. I can have a little more of Gar if I'll have a little bit of Claude. Ah, good question. Good question, ladies. Anybody else with another question? I have one. Okay. Did Trudy, did she believe that Claude was guilty in the deaths of both Gar and Edgar in the end, or did she really believe that Claude died trying to save Edgar? Okay, so now you're asking about the, what she believes at the very end of the book, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, and again, this is uh, open to interpretation and meant to be, but I think that what's at the very end of the book, Trudy has essentially been uh, sort of wiped clean emotionally. Um, and it's not clear to me what she knows entirely. What, what is clear to me is that she has been, uh, circumstances has, have forced her to look back and see the mistakes that she's made and how it's led up to that moment. So I believe that she understands, um, she understands about Gar and Claude. And I, I believe that she understands about Edgar, uh, but the book doesn't commit, if, if you understand the distinction I'm trying to make. Um, and I, I think it's entirely possible that she may not understand that yet. But, I, you know, Trudy's My feeling was that she didn't moment. understand. My feeling was that she, she, was, she still, she was opening up to see, wow, what have I been missing? What are all the clues that I've missed? Yes. But I didn't feel in the end that she really still got it. I think in the end of the book, my interpretation was that she thinks that Claude went in to save Edgar in the end. I, and, I, and I think that's a reasonable interpretation. This is one of those points where um, I wanted, uh, again, I wanted readers to be able to supply some level of interpretation and not just nail it down finally um, one way or another. So I'm sure you all disagree in the club, right? The book game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you all know how Amandine died? Thanks, thanks, everybody. Did you all, let me just ask this group, uh, the bookenders. Did you all know how, because I read it, and I was reading with my friend Kate Forte, and she's, you know, I finished the book, and the next day when she finished the book, she was, like, weeping, sobbing, sobbing about, you know, how Amandine had died. I didn't get how Amandine had died. How do you all think Amandine died? Natural causes, maybe? No, no, yeah, no, 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 no. There's a, there's a distinct moment when Almondine. Okay, so listen, listen to this. She stepped onto the sharp red gravel of the road. She was very nearly not there at all, so deeply was she inside her own mind. There was a time in her when he had fallen from an apple tree, 
a tree she just stepped away from. I'm on page 463, everybody. Uh, one, two, three paragraphs down. He'd landed with a chump on his back, a time in the winter when he'd piled the snow on her face until the world had gone white and she dug for his mitten hand. Inside her were countless mornings watching his eyes flutter open as he woke. Above all, she recalled the language the two of them had invented, a language in which everything important could be said. She did not know how to ask the traveler what she needed to ask, nor what form its reply might take, but it was upon her now, angry and rushed, and it wouldn't be long before she knew the answer. A bloom of dust, like a thundercloud, chased it down the hill. She stood broadside in the gravel and turned her head and asked her question, asked if it had seen her boy, her essence, her soul, but if the traveler understood, it showed no sign. Still don't know. <laughs> you still know. don't know. She got hit by the car. By the car. Oh. She was hit by the car. Yeah, it's a truck. It's a gravel truck, actually. Yeah. yeah. It's a gravel truck coming down the road. And see, I thought that she was looking up and she saw the dust on the road. Yeah. But Kate said yeah. no. She, when we argued the next day, she was definitely hit by the... She was definitely hit. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you called that... that First time we talked, yeah. we talked about this. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I wanted to know, was she hit by the truck? Yeah, I, yeah. I could tell you Dahl had been having a debate about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, um, and this is one and of those. she was hit by the truck. She was, absolutely. Absolutely. Although, um, after you pointed that out, I, uh, um, it never occurred to me that there was any other interpretation of the, that chapter until we talked. And then I realized, uh, and I think I said this on the phone, I realized that um, I had written it because, because this chapter is so hard. Yeah. Uh, I, I felt like it had to be addressed rather impressionistically. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I, it, in my mind, it was absolutely clear what happened, but I wanted the language to be impressionistic, and I didn't realize that I had left open for interpretation exactly, How exactly what happened there. And, yeah. and, and then I realized afterward we talked that um, Trudy thinks about Almanin having died, but she doesn't say... She doesn't make reference to the situation. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, you don't really know Amandine is yeah. dead until he comes back and she says, yeah. yeah. But there's uh, a couple of, can I, can I comment on that you passage? You can do for anything a <laughs> you want. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that's important in that, uh, in that passage is that it's about language. It is. About how she's searching to try and answer a question and she doesn't have the words to get the question answered. So when I think of that passage uh, and what was on my mind when I was writing, was not the mechanics of what was happening in that scene. Probably I should have paid more attention to that. But the idea that um, she was missing Edgar not just because he was her boy, but he was a participant in this language that they had constructed. Yeah. But also, I, I felt, didn't, when, you, when I re read that, even just now when I read it the first time, oh, my heart ached, there's an aching and a longing in this need for the language. There's yeah. a, you can feel her heart aching and yeah. longing. Yeah. Okay, couldn't you ladies feel that? Sure, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Great to talk to you. Thank you for Skyping in with us tonight. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank okay. You. Our next reader is uh, Cheryl from the Woodlands in Texas. She's Skyping us from her home library. Hi. Hi, Cheryl. Your question? Hi, David. How are Hi. you both doing today? We're great. great. Love your library. Uh, thank you. I, I tried to straighten out the, bo the books um, <laughs> yesterday. It still looks a little helter-skelter, I'm afraid. Hey, listen, David, um, there were many, many, many things that I loved about your novel. 
Um, one of the more compelling things I thought was the foreshadowing throughout the story. And it really was a hook that lulled you in and or lured you in and kept you reading. Uh, in addition to the imagery and everything else you added to the story. But I was really intrigued by what I thought was the use of this sort of magical realism technique that I've seen other modern writers employ. And I was wondering if, if you were trying to use that technique that you had seen in other writers' writings, and if so, who? And I'm specifically kind of focusing in on the prophecy of uh, Ida Payne throughout all this, and, and indirectly through the little girl at the diner. You know, she's, she's almost like an oracle at Delphi, and she it. doesn't seem yeah. to know the actual end result of what she's prophesizing, but uh, she knows something's up. And all of that seems very mystical to me. So I was wondering also, as you're planting these seeds of prophecy, like it's only the wind, or find the bottle, if you don't find the bottle, get out. Did you know at that point in time what the ending was, uh, was going to be or, or what the end of the prophecy was? And then if I could sneak in a conjunctive question here. Okay. The, the, the little girl in the diner, who I think was Ida Payne's granddaughter. Granddaughter, yes. Um, she said something that was really interesting to me about uh, Edgar's muteness. She said that um, her grandmother had told her that Edgar uh, was mute because he had a secret that God didn't want him to tell. Yeah. And so I guess the end of my very compound question here is, what was the secret that Edgar wasn't to tell? Okay. Um, so you may have to help me uh, reconstruct the, the entire. <laughs> so, but let's talk. For, let's talk for a second about foreshadowing. Okay. Foreshadowing. Um, there's two different kinds of foreshadowing that take place in this book. One, uh, one is intended to be invisible, uh, and the other is uh, is Ida Payne, who's supposed to be in the foreground and very very uh, obviously foreshadowing some things. Uh, I think of the structure of a novel as a braid. Uh, it's a braid of various things, plot points, but also images or words or ideas that will uh, be on the surface of the story for a little while and then submerge and then come up and be on the surface of the story again uh, in some slightly altered form. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the first chapter, um, there's, a, there's a sort of very brief throwaway scene where Edgar's grandfather has uh, adopted this pup named Gus, and they go sit by a lake, and he fishes and feeds the, um, feeds the pup uh, uh, fish that he's caught, that he's roasted over a fire. Uh, happens for a paragraph or something like that, and then disappears. Yeah. Uh, later in the book, in part four, that's practically what Edgar spends all his time doing. Now, I wouldn't call that foreshadowing. Um, but it is. I mean, it functions like foreshadowing. It's an it's a image that echoes later in the book. Well, and, and very, very much of the book works this way if you take it apart, apart technically. Um, Ida Payne is the only, uh, only element of this story that is intended to function like foreshadowing. And I wanted, she's not, you, I mean, you mentioned the Oracle at Delphi, which I think is a, is a uh, bullseye in one way. It, uh, I think of uh, Ida Payne as coming from, remember I talked about that palette? Yes. Um, coming from Macbeth and the witches in Macbeth, mm. uh, who have the same sort of function. They say, Macbeth, you know, you're going to be king. 
They don't tell them how uh, or why. And they say, and no one's going to be able to kill you until these woods come to this hill, and so on. And so I was, in my mind, during that process, I was thinking mainly of uh, the witches in Macbeth. Um, right. Of course, they're, yeah. But of course, they're part of a larger tradition of right. oracles and storytelling. And I think they're all connected. OK. And what is the secret that Edgar holds? Uh, you know, um, I think that that secret is, the, is that he, uh, he knows or will know. I'm trying to remember when it happens in the story now. Uh, he doesn't know yet uh, that about what happened with Gar and Claude. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I, it's meant to be a puzzle at that point. It's puzzling for Edgar. Uh, and uh, uh, I, it's meant to, that's one of those elements that's sort of meant to submerge and, and be below the surface for the rest of the story. Isn't this a, quite a story? Oh, wonderful. Wonderful story, yeah. Um, it's, it's, to me, it's just such a compelling read, and the imagery was just off the charts. Um, I read this for the first time last summer. I think it was shortly after it was released, and we were on vacation in Belize. So I devoted all day, every day, reading it. And then my book club, and they're going to kill me because they're not all arrayed behind me. I didn't know that was an option. Uh, we're, we're meeting this Thursday to discuss this book and also Hamlet. And I threw in, and I'm beginning to wonder why now, but I threw in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead mm. because I thought they were all somehow related. But it's a wonderful, rich read, and I loved it. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Thank you. Okay. We have Laurie from Ontario, Canada on the phone. Laurie, your question for David? Hi, hi, Oprah. David, my question as I was reading through the pain that Edgar would have in his chest, I know when he was trying to get the operator to be able to understand that he, he needed help, he was pounding on that chest, but then he continued to have this horrendous pain, this really heartbreaking pain. And I wanted to know, what was that about? Was that just the heartache of, of his life, or was it, you know, was it his father coming to him, or, or what were you after there? Okay, uh, first of all, hi, thanks for calling. And, uh, <laughs> um, uh, he's feeling pain in his chest, uh, and it's not revealed until after it's first mentioned that in his sleep, while he's sleeping, he's still beating his chest. And so, there, so what's happening is, uh, and he's in this very strange state at that point in the story of sort of denial and uh, s suspecting that something's not right, but not knowing how to assemble it no. coherently. What's happening is, uh, I think, in his sleep and sort of in the edges of his mind, he knows something's not right. And he keeps reliving in his dreams, or in his sleep at least, um, that moment when he's on the phone. And so in his sleep, he's striking his chest, and he doesn't even know he's doing it. And in the way that we can all sort of look around things that are mm -hmm. incredibly obvious, mm -hmm. he's managed not to notice that he has a big bruise on his chest until that moment in the story when Trudy says, what is going on? Take off your shirt. What's going on with that big bruise on your chest? Um, and so, uh, at, but when, it, when, when uh, in the story, when he first notices that he wakes up and he just feels this ache that's sort of radiating, radiating out from the middle of his chest, he doesn't connect it to that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, and Lori. I loved the book. Just loved it. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Richard, Skyping us from London, where I believe it's the middle of the night. Hi, Richard. 
Thanks Hello for staying there. up. Thanks for staying up with us. Oh, my pleasure. It's an honor to uh, take part. And your question. Um, I wanted to ask David, um, first of all, thank you for spending that 10 to 15 years it took you to, uh, to come to grips with getting this novel finished, because it's been a pleasure to read. Mm. Thank you. Um, I noticed in the, uh, in the blurb, the author's blurb at the back of the book, um, that you had done an MFA in, uh, in creative writing. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've been in two minds about, about doing myself. So I just wanted to um, get your thoughts on, first off, what... Um, uh, prompted you to to undertake like that uh, a, a really structured and almost theoretical, uh, uh, very detailed study of the craft of fiction in that way, and in what ways did it help you? Well, th this is a great question, and we could probably talk for the rest of the night on this <laughs> on this one thing. Uh, I'll tell you that I tried everything I could not to enter an MFA program, um, so I I went to lots of other sources. I read a lot of books on writing. Um, I read, uh, for instance, the Paris Review interviews with, with writers, which are this wonderful, wonderful archive of long and fascinating interviews. But there was a particular question that I could not answer for myself. Once I started working on a novel, these things that I'd been reading my entire life and which felt like the most natural art form in the world, mm -hmm. once I started to try and make one for myself, I couldn't understand how they could, a story that long, 200, 300, 500 pages, how it could hold together and be a single experience. I mean, uh, it, it, uh, it's almost like I, um, uh, I stopped believing that a story that long could be coherent. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I started looking for, I thought there must be some technique or craft point um, that uh, ties everything together. Um, and I was looking, I, I was obviously looking in the wrong places. And it didn't stop me from writing, but what it, but I ended up with islands of text. Mm -hmm. uh, so eventually, I reached a point where I thought I need to. T I, I happen to believe pretty strongly in uh, apprenticeship learning. You find somebody who's really good at what they're doing, and and watch them do it. Uh, and so the MFA program that I was uh, that I ultimately entered is a very one-on-one -on -one kind of program, and it allowed me to say to these people one after another, how do you, you know, how do you solve this problem? Do you even see it as a problem? Uh, what do you do about it? And I got different answers from all of them, but eventually the answer that I came up with for myself was that this braid structure that I talked about is the very thing that holds a novel together. And there's not some, I, ca I, I used to call it middle, middle level, middle layer, mm -hmm. um, that there's not some middle layer. There's all the details of individual scenes. There's the, the overall arch of the story, but everything is twined together and you can't point at any one thing and say, well, this is sort of a framework that makes this, uh, makes this whole center section hold together or anything like that. Richard, uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thanks thank for you. staying up. We've got a couple of emails here. Uh, Renee Davis um, has a question about uh, when your book is made into a movie, who do you see playing Gar, Trudy, and Edgar? <laughs> I know what kind of dog should play Almondine. What kind of dog should play the Sawtail Dogs? That's going to be a um, <clears throat> really great question. Yes, I have no idea. I have no idea. I think uh, I um, these are people that I have um, I have th that are absolutely distinct individuals to me. So um, part of the exercise for me as the author is to let go of them a little bit and let mm -hmm. somebody else inhabit those characters in film on this completely different medium. And actually, the, the, um, 
the the human characters are much easier for me than than the sawtail dogs. I know. Specifically because I think of the sawtail dogs as whatever you whatever you the reader creates. Um, and, and so, so now there's going to be a dog. There's going to be a picture a um, of a dog uh, of a of a particular dog there, and that's going to be very tricky. So I don't know. And Almondine, I'm I'm as fascinated as anyone could possibly be to uh, to see how Almondine gets cast. Well, Daphne may be a good. Uh, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> she had the spirit right. She had I, the spirit I, right. I yeah. Really. Uh, yeah, I look forward to making the the working creatively with uh, Tom Hanks's company, Playtone, and uh, uh, my company and Universal to figure all that out. Yes. It's going to be a wonderful process. Okay, here is June from Dudley, Massachusetts. Did you give Edgar the power to see ghosts to compensate for his inability to speak? Interesting question. I uh, Not directly, I, uh, um, but I, I think of them as connected. Uh, as I said earlier, I think of um, uh, things that can set you apart, that can isolate you. Uh, one of them is uh, speechlessness. Mm -hmm. it, makes you, it makes you a loner. Uh, it also makes you an observer, like I said. Um, but also, the whole idea of haunting, it has to do with being isolated. Because when you're haunted, you've been... Uh, nobody's haunted in a crowd. They're haunted all by themselves. Yeah. Right? And the book leaves you feeling that haunted. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so the ideas are related, but not, uh, not in the writing was I trying to connect them directly. Mm -hmm. Okay. That got answered. All right. Are you um, surprised at all by the success, by the reception <laughs> of the book? By the reception. And I'm not saying that, you know, to hear anything about the book club selection because as I said when I announced the book I am literally jumping on the bandwagon of all the other acclaim critical and personal that you've yeah. received for this book yeah. were you surprised you know you work so long on it I know no author sets out to you know say gee I'm going to have this critically acclaimed book you're just writing the story right yeah yeah no I was surprised um, and particularly since this was a story that I'd been living with you know, sort of in, in, in my office. I think of it as like I had it in a cage in my office. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and I had this very, uh, uh, when we talked on, on the telephone, uh, or on, uh, actually when you announced the book, yeah. I said that it was a very private, very personal project for me because I had developed over all these years this sort of lifestyle where these were people I know, and they were all mine. Almondine was all mine. Edgar was all mine. Mm. Um, and so... Um, I had no idea w whether that would translate for other people or not. Um, uh, and it wasn't, it really wasn't foremost in my mind when I was writing. Uh, what was important to me was getting the book written. Uh, I, I'm aware that most first novels don't even get published. Right. And that they are, they're the training ground that you create for yourself. So for me, a, uh, a big part of this, um, the, Probably the most exciting moment in the writing of this book or in the publishing of this book was just finding out it was going to be published at all. And if 500 people or 5,000 people read it, that would, that would have been fine with me. Just the idea that it, that it was going to get a chance to get out of that cage and, and have a public life was wow. very exciting. That is so moving. Yeah. I think what's so interesting, too, is what you were saying earlier about Almondine, because as I've expressed to our viewers and also to you when I first called, that the chapters about the, 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 the chapters 
that Amandine wrote are almost, they feel holy, they feel sacred to me in yeah. a way. And now to hear how those are the ones that were the least, you know, touched by you or the editor uh, after writing. And to also understand, I had an aha moment here, that the fact that Amandine didn't have a language to express, that somehow the languaging or the words had to be chosen so carefully, so, you know, specifically and deeply to express her feelings. Yes. That's part of the reason why it there there feels like there's such grace yeah. in those chapters. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I, um, I, I, I sort of feel about them the same way. Like they yeah. were a gift. I, I feel that way about Almondine. She was just a gift that I got, and I didn't deserve her or earn her. Uh, I'm just a sort of act of grace from you know wherever writing comes from that this character dropped into my life. So mm -hmm. I absolutely feel that way. Well, we polled our readers. We did a poll on Oprah.com. We asked our book club members what they most wanted to know. Asked y'all about Edgar Sawtell. And I think the number one question that our readers have is, <laughs> of course, mm -hmm. why wasn't there a happy ending? Mm -hmm. Why wasn't there a happy ending? Did you know how it was going to end I when did. you started? Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't know the details of how it was going to end. Yeah. I knew the, I had a, I had a sort of, um, sort of vague emotional response toward the ending, and I knew it was going to be, I knew it was a tragedy, so I knew this was an exercise in tragedy in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, not that I knew what that meant at the time, uh, but I, I understood the general story arc. Uh, right. So, yeah, you um, explained that in the beginning. So you knew yeah. that it was going to be a tragic ending, you yeah. just didn't know the details of yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that this is a question that comes up a lot. I've not had a lot of chance to, to talk about it because when I talk at bookstores and so on, generally you don't someone, tell the well, someone will ask a question and then the rest of the crowd, we'll there's say. a sort of rumble that goes through the crowd. Other people say, don't, don't talk about the ending. Right. So um, I, I want to, I'd like, if we could, I want to read a quote from Franz Kafka because this, I think this yeah. is very meaningful uh, in, in this regard. It has to do with why we read sad stories or why we engage in tragedy at all. Okay. Um, he wrote, this is from a letter that he wrote to a friend of his, Max Broad. He says, I think we ought to read only the kinds of books that wound and stab us. If the book we are reading doesn't wake us up with a blow on the head, then what are we reading it for? Mm. We need books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, wow. like being banished into the forests far from everyone, like a suicide. Mm. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea inside us. Wow. Right uh, that's, a, that's a passage that I ran across while I was in the middle of um, writing Edgar's story. And it explained to me a lot about why it was, it was worth um, telling a sad story, basically. Um, Boy, I and love my, that quote. Yeah. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea yeah, isn't inside that wonderful? of us. Yes. Uh, and part of... Uh, well, that's what I felt at the end, and I know so many of you did. At the end of this story, in the barn, the tragedy in the barn, we always, we all felt like we got a blow to our heads. Yeah. 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 But I think there's... Uh, uh, I think of it uh, slightly... I would root word things slightly differently than he did. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, when I think about uh, the function of tragedy, I think of it as um, helping us see things more clearly. And the way I think about that is 
I think in our ordinary everyday life, we go around with a kind of armor on. It's very necessary to get the work that we do every day done and live our lives. Um, but that armor also uh, is a kind of veil, and we can't see clearly through it. Hmm. And what, what tragedy does, we, or what, what we want out of our stories is somehow to see things more clearly. Mm -hmm. And what tragedy and comedy do, the only two, things we, two ways we know to do this, is get readers or people in an audience to sort of drop that armor for a little while. Mm -hmm. And in that moment when that armor is dropped and they can see things clearly, um, there's a chance to show them something that's meaningful and that they will see it more deeply or more clearly somehow than they would ordinarily. And it doesn't last very long, and that armor and that shield goes back up, uh, and then we're back in our sort of ordinary way of experiencing the world. And I think that's what tragedy does. That's why this sort of paradox of tragedy is, who wants to know, read a sad story? And yet we feel a little bit grateful. When it works, we feel a little bit grateful that we have. Yeah, and haunted. And haunted. And a little haunted. Yes. We just got a great email from Canada that says, oh, this is from Myra from uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. Um, she says, I thought the ending was perfectly clear. Edgar left life because he was ready. He was incomplete without Almondine, mm -hmm. his father, and his former life. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is what happened to his mother. I see her being suicidal. Uh, well, first of all, I, I agree with the first part of, yes, of, that he was of this. That, that he left because he was ready. Yeah, part of, part of, I think, for me at least, what's satisfying about the ending is that Edgar is reunited with Almondine mm -hmm. um, in a tragic way, but, uh, but that's still, uh, it, it feels to me like there are two halves of the same character, and, and to leave them apart at the end of the story would be, would make it not a story at all. So they had to come, come together, and they could only come together in that way. So to me, there's something right about it, even though it's yeah. hard. Yeah, beautiful. Um, Trudy, however, uh, I think, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that she would be suicidal. However, I do think that for her to go forward, she has to basically start from scratch. Right. She has to rebuild her life. She has to she have has a deep nothing. reckoning with herself. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you, Myra from Regina. That's really good, really. Yeah. The next most popular question from our book club members is what happens to the Sawtell dogs? <laughs> yes. Yeah, now this is, the, this is my very favorite question to ask readers. Um, the whole story is constructed so that at the end of the story, the Sawtell dogs reach a moment where they can make a choice. Yes. The, in that last they sentence. get to choose. The, the most important word entirely is the word choice. Yeah. The fulfillment of Edgar's grandfather's vision. Uh, it's the thing that, that uh, in that, you know, I talked about that moment when right. that tragedy lets you see something clearly. That chapter, that final chapter is, in my, in my view, that's the moment I want you to see as clearly as possible. Uh, and and I, want the, I want the dogs at the end of that story to be absolutely poised and capable of making either choice, but I don't want the story to commit. It's one of those things, like what the dogs are exactly like, that I want readers to, to bring to the story. Yes, because a lot of people want to know, do they go back to Henry's house? Do they, they went wherever you think they went. Right. Yeah. Yeah, look back at the story. If you... They have the power to choose. What would they choose? Knowing what they know now, what would they choose? And that is the question that is posed to the reader. She looked behind her one last time into the forest and along the way they'd come. And when she was sure all of them were together now and no others would appear, 
she turned and made her choice and began to cross. Right. But what that choice is is not said. Yeah. Powerful. Powerful. And the third most popular question is, okay, that was a question. Why did Claude really, why did Claude really kill Gar? I'm not sure I understand this question. I saw the I saw yeah. I saw the um, poll when it was sent out. Yeah. I'm not sure uh, I totally understand the intent behind the question. Yeah, me too. That's why I just said that. Um, I think that uh, I mentioned this earlier. I um, Edgar's got a problem to solve. Once he understands that um, that Claude may or may probably have uh, killed Gar, he's got a problem to solve. And and answering that. Uh, question is the problem, but he never gets evidence and he can never know because the only person who really knows is Claude and he's not going to tell anybody. Right. Right. Um, so uh, again, I felt like as a, as a writer, if I were to know that in great detail, I, it would have to be in the book. Um, and so I wanted to work within the framework that Edgar was working in, that he doesn't quite know he has evidence, evidence of guilt, things that are, are meaningful to him but not necessarily reasons. Uh, and so I can't supply the answer to that question. I saw another question too from somebody wanted to know whether or not when Claude, in the beginning of the prologue, purchases the poison, is he purchasing it for Gar? Is he purchasing it because he's the kind of guy you just may need some poison? <laughs> <laughs> you know, at some point in life, you just may need a couple of drops. Yeah, when people get in your way. Uh, and. I, I can tell you my take on that. Okay. I, think, I think it's one of those things that could be interpreted a couple of different ways. But uh, my take is that at that that's the moment in, in Claude's life when he has not yet uh, given up hope of being uh, a, a full person, a sound, good person. Uh, and he's, uh, what he's encountered at this point is the ability to have death which is the, the little debate that he and the old herbalist have. Well, um, it's not good to have the power of death, but not the power of life. But I don't believe that he, I, I believe he's, he has a sort of darkness in him mm -hmm. that draws him toward that, um, but he doesn't know why, and he doesn't have a specific purpose for it. Certainly not the purpose to go um, many years later and kill his and brother. Kill his brother. Um, but I think that in terms of his character psychology, it's something he's drawn toward. He might not know why. But like you say, one of those people who just I may need feels, feels like it would be a, a, a fascinating thing to have hold of. So after you finish this book and you know that you have written that last sentence and you've sent it off to your publisher and uh -huh. it's, you know, about to come out of its cage, do you you know, rest? Do you not write for a long time? What is the, what is the process after the process? Uh, the process after the process is to take a new project on. Mm. That's the way it always works in anything. Mm -hmm. Once you've finished some creative thing, the, the, you have to recover from it. Mm -hmm. and, and you take some time off, but you also begin thinking about what the next creative work is. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, for me, I'm thinking about a, a new book right now. And I've begun writing on it, but it's been a very busy few months. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I haven't made as much progress as is I'd like to. Is it a sequel to this? There are three books. There are three books. And I think of them as a triptych, as three portraits that can hang side by side and um, without 
uh, explicit um, uh, plot lines that connect them strongly, uh -huh. they will tell a story uh, taken together that is bigger than the story of any one of the books. So does that mean we'll see or hear Trudy again? Possibly. Possibly? Possibly. The, next, the main character in the next book is John Sautel. John Sautel? Is Edgar's grandfather. Wow. Yes. And uh, I feel about him the way I felt about Edgar when I was first starting this book. He's a character that fascinates me. Yeah. Um, and I want to learn everything there is to know about him. So I'm very much looking forward to getting started. OK, so you haven't gotten started. You just have sort of an outline in your I have. The, the way I've described it is that I'm right now I've built the workshop in which. You have the capsule? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have the, I'm, I'm building the workshop in which that book will be written. But, I'm, but I, haven't, uh, I haven't got a first draft. I'm, uh, I, have, I have piece parts around, and I'm assembling them and filling them in and so on. All right. Well, it's a process. It's a process, absolutely. Debbie from North Carolina. Hi, Debbie. You're on the phone. Hi. Hi, Oprah. Hi, Hi. David. Hi, David. Debbie. Fabulous book. Gosh, I just get teary-eyed sitting here discussing it. Thank you. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, which I don't think anyone has talked about yet, was the significance of the storm mm -hmm. uh, when, mm. when uh, you, Edgar was with Henry and the three dogs. We didn't talk about Henry. Yeah, we haven't talked about Henry. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, Debbie. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's okay. I just wondered about the significance of the storm when yeah. Henry and Edgar and the three dogs were together. I think I may have missed. I know it was a significant turning point, but I guess I didn't fully understand it. Uh, Great question. Yeah. Uh, well, on, on, uh, at one level, the storm is the fulfillment of what Ida Payne predicted. She said, it's just wind. Don't let it, don't let it turn you around. But of course, he, Edgar yeah. does. Um, I think that Edgar sees in the storm some significance. Uh, uh, he's seeing, uh, essentially played out in weather, a conflict between several funnel clouds. Um, and he's also, but more importantly, he sees Essay stand, stand her ground or try to stand her ground in the face of something that could destroy her. Uh, and um, I, think he, I think he thinks at that moment, the thing that I, certainly I've experienced watching my own dogs at certain times, that uh, they're better than me. You know, they're, they're purer than me. They, they have strong ideas about what's right and wrong. And um, that, those ideas are everything to them. And uh, it is the, that is the thing that turns Edgar around finally. Because otherwise, I think he would continue going to Starchild Colony. Mm. Um, so uh, uh, so it, to me, that is the significance of the storm. How, I mean, now we have to go back to the braid idea for a second. The very first line of this book <laughs> says, after the dark, the rain began to fall again. And their rain comes up and storms come up again and again and again in this story. So I also felt like it was appropriate that the thing that would make Edgar turn back is a storm, rain, in some form, since rain is in some way uh, tied up with the thing that has uh, exploded his life in the first place and made him run away. You got that, Debbie? I do. Thank you very much. Well, let's talk about Henry. Yes. Is he a composite of? Many people you know, or? Um, uh, Henry, uh, I said there are certain characters. I, I don't, 
I didn't have the experience of characters taking over. Yes. Uh, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, Henry was absolutely yeah. one of them. Uh, when I wrote part four I'm of this sure book. ordinary, whatever. He's yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm really fond of Henry. Uh, when I wrote part four, I knew only that he, uh, that Edgar was going to step over that creek, uh, go into the woods, learn something about the world, and at the end of part four, he was going to step back over the creek, having placed the dog somehow and learned whatever he was going to learn. But I didn't know that Henry was You there. knew the dogs were going to stay with Henry? I knew the dogs. I knew that part of what Edgar's job was in the world was, was to, to place, place those dogs, dogs to, to answer for himself, uh, what is the value of the Sawtell dogs and where do they belong? Mm. Uh, and so uh, ultimately, I thought I think of Henry as a good man. You know, Edgar gets to go out and meet a good, a really fine human being. Mm -hmm. uh, ironically, that person feels kind of existentially cursed. Uh, he doesn't. He thinks that he's ordinary, um, and Edgar and I obviously do, don't think he's ordinary. ordinary but he can't see it yet. He can't see it yet. So um, where did you come up with that ordinary line? Uh, that comes from being a Midwesterner. Really? Uh, I think um, growing up in the Midwest. When he opens the door Wisconsin, and sees him for the first time, and there's that, again, says, foreshadowing of, and yeah. he says, yeah, this is sure and ordinary. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, you, you know, one of the experiences of growing up in the Midwest is that you, you feel about it. It's a, it's a wonderful place. I love where I grew up. But it took me some time. Uh, to look back on it and see it as a very distinct place. Um, the people don't have strong, unusual accents. Um, they're not known for a particular character quality, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I was young, I couldn't wait to leave for a lot of reasons. Because you uh, thought you were ordinary? Because I thought, I thought, this place is no real place. You know, yeah. other places, they have a coast or they, you know, yeah. um, they have, they have uh, you know, this unusual history. It's not the South with its sort of long legacy. Uh, um, so, uh, it's Wisconsin. It's Wisconsin, yeah. yeah. Everybody's reasonable and they yeah. see the middle of the road and so on. So it wasn't until I had sort of grown up and moved away and I was in my 30s and I could look back. Uh, and I looked at that place and I said, wait a second, these people, this place has real character and these people have real character, but it's subtle and it's interesting. And I was very proud of suddenly of coming from that place. And I wanted Henry, once I met Henry, he became for me this sort of embodiment of of all the people that I knew where I came from. Mm -hmm. um, good, that I'm solid. Good, solid, charming, charming. self-effacing, mm -hmm. et cetera, so. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, I want to thank all of you for joining us here in the book club. And those of you who read and read a long time ago and kept saying, when are we going to have David on? David, thank you so much oh, for being my, here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. If you want to watch this book discussion again, or tell a friend who missed it. Our webcast will be available on demand tomorrow for free here at Oprah.com. You'll also be able to download the podcast tomorrow at Oprah.com and on iTunes. Uh, tonight's conversation continues right after this webcast. If you're an Oprah and friend subscriber, you can tune into XM156 and Sirius 195 for our live radio show. David's going to be there, so keep your calls coming. Same number, 866-OPRAH-XM, 677-2496. Thank you so much, really. Thank you. I think it's been wonderful for all of us to be able to really just have a little bit insight into what the process, and those of us who loved it, you know, really loved it, now have even a deeper appreciation for the process that created the story of Edgar Sautel. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, everybody.
here's to books. Hey, here's to books. Here's to books. Yay. Yay, here's to books. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you. Bye, everybody. Good night. Thank you for joining the webcast. Find the support and tools you need at Oprah.com.